I'm doing what God says because I'm following my rules. But you're not following my rules, so you're not doing what God says. Do you see what's happening? They're putting their own rules and regulations on the same level and with the same authority as the Word of God. Well, as the young ones make their way to King's Kids, I will invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 is where we are today, working our way through the Gospel. We started uh, at the beginning of the year, and we're not going to get finished this year. It's going to spill over into next year, but that's all right, because um, we want to take our time and see all that the Lord has for us, and we have some other things that we've looked at along the way. So Mark chapter 7 is where we are. I'm going to read for us to get it set in our minds the first 13 verses and I'm delighted to see those pages turn and for you to follow along because I want you to see that it's in your book too and uh, I'm not making this stuff up as I go along but uh, it is uh, it is God's inspired authoritative word for us and we need to receive it in that way so mark chapter 7 beginning at verse 1 then the pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him having come from jerusalem now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled that is with unwashed hands they found fault for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups and pitchers and copper vessels and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the traditions of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you said, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is, a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down. And many such things you do. Let's pray. Gracious Father, this is perhaps a difficult word for us because we think we're far removed from these kinds of strange behaviors like washing cups and pots and washing hands in certain ceremonial ways. And Lord, 
and they think that it's hard for us to make any kind of a connection or get anything out of this portion of Scripture. But Lord, it is your inspired word, and you have put it here for our benefit so that we might learn, so that we might be transformed, so that we might be challenged to live the kind of life that honors and glorifies Jesus Christ, our Savior. So Father, help us, please, as we look into your word, as we see the different groups of people that are represented here, as we think about what Jesus has said, help us to see how it applies in our world in our own lives this very day. Father, this is your word. May we receive it as such. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, you have to wonder who in the world these Pharisees are, don't you? I mean, they show up every so often in the pages of Scripture, and uh, we, we don't maybe feel as familiar with them as we do some of the other groups in the Scriptures. So let me just give you a little rundown on who these Pharisee guys really are. They were probably the most religious, the most fastidious group of the Jews. They were very, very strict in observance of what they considered to be the important points of the law. They got their start back probably in the captivity period. Now, during the Babylonian captivity, God had raised up the nation of Babylon to be his instrument of judgment against his own people, the Jews, because of their idolatry, because of the fact that they had turned so far from God and, and they couldn't even hear God's voice anymore. And God says, all right, I'm going to send you into captivity for 70 long years. Well, the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. by King Nebuchadnezzar. And what do you do when you no longer have a temple which had been the, the centerpiece of Jewish worship? It, it's gone. And so the law became their focal point. They, they searched the scriptures. They searched the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, to find out how we're going to worship God now that we can't make sacrifice, now that the temple is gone. And so they began to look at the word of God and they began to say, okay, it says don't work on the Sabbath. Well, how can we define that? And so they came up with all kinds of additional definitions to what that would mean so that they could look at every single area of life and say, I'm doing what God says, or you're not doing what God says. You notice how that works? <laughs> I'm doing what God says, because I'm following my rules. But you're not following my rules, so you're not doing what God says. Do you see what's happening? They're putting their own rules and regulations on the same level and with the same authority as the Word of God. Now, there was a group known as the scribes who really were the, the primary movers of that process of studying the scripture. And what they found is what they wrote down. And the Pharisees were the ones who said, 
oh, these are the teachings of the scribes, these are the teachings of the elders, we're going to put them into practice in our lives. We're going to show everybody how holy, how separated we are. In fact, the, uh, the very word Pharisee means the separated ones. They separated themselves for the purpose of being holy. That term, Pharisee, first appears in, in writing that we can track it back to about 135 B.C., but it had been established before then in practice during the Maccabean Revolt, which was another period of Jewish history where though the temple had been rebuilt, now it had been defiled by Antiochus Epiphanes, who had caused a pig to be sacrificed on the altar. Well, they couldn't stand that, and so they, they, they revolted against Antiochus, they revolted against the control of what was then the Greek Empire, which had replaced the Medo-Persian Empire, which had replaced the Roman Empire. So this was a long process of this Pharisaic tradition coming into, into control uh, over most of Jewish society. And so they, they gathered up all of these traditions, all of these teachings. Now on the one hand, you might say, well, you know, it's commendable for people to ask the question, what is it that pleases God? That's a good question to ask, isn't it? I hope that's a question that you're asking. God, what is the thing that pleases you the most? Because that's what we, as those who claim to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, should be doing. We have a life. God has given us life. He's He's given us days or weeks or months or years, I don't know. But from the moment of our salvation, he's given us a life to live. And we ought to take that life and use it for the glory of God. So what is it that pleases God? The problem here is that they externalized everything. They put it on the outside. Remember Jesus during his ministry on more than one occasion complained because everybody around him, he described them as like whitewashed tombs. They looked good on the outside, but on the inside, they were full of dead men's bones. He, he, he complained because, and he criticized and he condemned them because they thought that pleasing God, serving God, doing the things that, that would result in a well-done, good and faithful servant commendation from God were all external. They didn't consider their hearts. So that while on the outside they might be doing the things that the Pharisees and the scribes had said should be done, their heart was filled with anger and bitterness and hatred toward other people, sometimes even toward each other. As one Pharisee thought he was better than the next Pharisee, you know, and on it would go, this constant comparing because of external issues. 
Now the Pharisees were not necessarily bad in their theology. They believed in one God. They believed in miracles. They believed in angels. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in the final judgment. They believed in eternal life. Um, so far I can say, yeah, me too. But it was all externalized. There was no heart. It, it, was, it was all a head knowledge, but they did not bring it down into that portion of life where it affected their decision-making processes. They believed in eternal life, but that didn't change the way that they lived on a day-to-day -day basis. They believed in God. They believed in miracles. But when God showed up in human flesh and performed miracles, I mean miracles. You know, we, we cheapen that idea of a miracle, don't we? You know, we, we look and say, well, you know, boy, it's raining today. That's a miracle. Well. No, God is behind it all. God's bringing it to pass, but he's using the ordinary methods and means of rain. He, he's the one that created weather, and, and he's directing that. But that's part of his providential care for us. A miracle is when Jesus walks on the water, because people don't walk on water. When, when was the last time you saw a human being walking on water? You didn't, did you? They tend to sink when they get into the water. They have to work at it a little bit to stay up on top. So they saw God in the flesh performing miracles, and what conclusion did they come to? Oh, he does all that by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Seriously? What a wrong conclusion. But when you externalize everything, and make a relationship with God based on simply the, the works that you do, that's where you inevitably end up. That's inevitably where you end up. You just realize that, that external stuff is not what God is looking for. Do you remember the choice of a successor to King Saul. You know, King Saul was the first king of Israel. And King Saul started out doing well, but then he couldn't stand it anymore, and he couldn't wait, and so he violated uh, God's instructions, and he didn't listen to what the Lord had to say, and, and he did his own thing, and he didn't wait for Samuel, and he offered him a sacrifice, and so forth. And God, as a consequence, said, you know, I'm, I'm going to remove the kingship from Saul. I'm going to give it to a man after my own heart. I'm going to give it to one who will serve me faithfully. And so God instructed Samuel to go down to the town of Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse. And there, God would reveal to Samuel who the next king of Israel would be. Maybe you remember the story. Samuel gets there, he talks with Jesse, he says, you know, where's all your sons? Jesse brings his sons, and the first one to come in the door is Eliab. And he was a tall, strong, 
good-looking, well-spoken man. And he strides into the room. And Samuel says, oh, surely the Lord's anointed is among us. And he's getting ready to get up and anoint the guy with oil. And God says in Samuel's spirit, sit down, Samuel. You are looking on the outside. But I'm looking on the heart. That's what God is doing. He is looking on the heart. The Pharisees are externalizing everything. And when you do that, all it does is result in a feeling of superiority. Oh, I'm tithing my mint and my cumin, those little herbs in the garden. I'm, I'm given a 10% of even that. Oh, I'm not working on the Sabbath. I won't even eat an egg that was laid on the Sabbath because the chicken had to work. Oh, I just do wonderful things and, and, and I give alms to the poor. So aren't I wonderful? And all the while, the heart is filled with hatred and bitterness and strife and pride and arrogance and envy and all of those things. All of those things that produce the quarrels and the animosity among us. It results in a feeling of pride. It results in a feeling of contempt for other people. Oh, I do all these things, therefore I am better than you. I'm going to be closer to the throne of God in heaven than you because I'm working harder and I'm doing more and I'm pleasing God better than anyone else. Now there is another group called the Sadducees and I want to just mention them in passing simply. They're, they're not really a part of the passage here but it'll give you a little better picture of the days in which Jesus lived and the days in which we live. The Sadducees were the priests. Now, not every priest was a Sadducee, but every Sadducee was a priest. So it was restricted to the priestly line. And these Sadducees would have been the theological liberals of their day. The Pharisees believed, or yeah, the Pharisees believed in God. They believed in angels. They believed in miracles. They believed in you know the resurrection and all those things. The Sadducees over here denied all that stuff. They were, the, they were the practical folks that used religion as a means to get what they wanted. Did you ever meet anybody like that? Uh, they go to church, and they go to this particular church because that's where their boss goes to church. And because their boss goes to church, they want to impress the boss, and they'll go to his church or her church and, and just kind of make a good impression. So they're going to use religion to get ahead in life. Do you ever meet somebody like that? Their, their heart's not in it at all. They don't even believe it, but they'll use it for their own purposes. They were very practical. They never let religion get in the way of political advancement or financial gain or anything like that. They, they, 
Their, their governing principle in life was get ahead, however it works. That's the Sadducees. You know, really, both groups are kind of prevalent in the broad church today. There are those that try to put so many hedges of protection around the Word of God that you can't see the Word of God anymore for the hedges of protection. You don't know what God has said and what people have said. And they keep appealing to their rules, their rules, their regulations. And, and, and nobody, I mean, they talk about God, but nobody opens the Word of God to see what God has to say on an issue. They just talk about Oh, well, what we've done in the past and the traditions, the traditions, the traditions. You know what a tradition is, don't you? It's a thing that we do and we've forgotten why we do it. I've told the story before. If, if you've heard it, just wait and laugh at the appropriate moment. And I'll feel better, okay? It's about the lady that cut off the end of her roast and did it in the, in the roaster pan, you know? And her husband asked her, why do you always cut the end off of it? Well, that's because what mom did. So the husband went and asked mom and you know, his mother-in-law, well, why did you, well, that's because what grandma did. So the guy goes and he asks the grandmother-in-law, why do you always cut the end off the roast? She says, because I didn't have a pan big enough to put it in. <laughs> I mean, come on, you know? But sometimes our traditions are that silly. We've done something because we've done something. And we're going to do it again because we did it before. And that's just the way we do things. That's the way we live. We have to put things here in this certain place and in that certain way. And, and, everything. and we substitute that kind of stuff for a living, vital relationship with Jesus Christ. Or... The other end of the pendulum, we don't believe any of it. There's people today who come to church and they don't believe any of it. And you can see that by the way they live on the other 167 hours a week. You know, they're here for an hour. We've got 168 hours in a week. And, and they give one hour to God, whom they don't believe in, and then they go out and live the way they want to live for the other 167 hours, and that really shows you what they believe. They believe in themselves. They believe in their own wisdom. They believe in their own religion that they have created in their minds. Jesus becomes the target of these guys. And so they ask him there in uh, verse 2, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, unwashed hands, they found fault. Ha ah, got you now. You're supposed to be a rabbi. You're supposed to be teaching these guys. You're supposed to be upholding the things of God. Listen, you can't even get the hand-washing ceremony right. Boy, that's a pretty serious charge, isn't it? They didn't wash their hands in a certain way. Jesus cuts to the chase. I mean, he doesn't mince words because Jesus knew what was in their hearts. Jesus knew why they were attacking him. This is a group that came up from Jerusalem. 
So these are the heavyweights. Well, I don't know who their names were, but, but these were the heavyweights. This was a delegation sent up from Jerusalem to spy on Jesus and to find out what he was doing and to declare to him and to everybody else that he was wrong. Because the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees all down there in Jerusalem, they were opposed to Jesus. They hated him because he was getting to the issue of the human heart. And so Jesus cuts right to that issue in verse 6. He says, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 29 verse 13. Let me read verses 13 and 14 to you from Isaiah 29. Therefore the Lord said, inasmuch as these, <clears throat> excuse me, inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men, therefore behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. What's God saying here? He says, okay, they want to draw near to me with their lips. They want to have a form of religion, but they don't want God. And their fear toward me, that's an interesting phrase. The reverence, the awe, the obedience, the fear toward me is taught by commandments of men. In other words, I'm going to tell you based on my authority and my opinion, how to please God. The commandments of men. Because that's the condition God is saying, listen, I'm going to bring their wisdom, their teaching, their instruction to nothing. I'm going to expose it for what it really is, a meaningless, false gospel. And that's what Jesus does. He exposes them. I mean, here, can't you just picture the scene? I don't know if they were all standing or sitting, but wherever they were, they were they around each other. And surely there was a crowd of people around because, I mean, this would have been of interest. I mean, here's Jesus and his disciples. Here's the scribes and the Pharisees. And you know that there's going to be a conflict because the scribes and Pharisees have been resisting Jesus more and more and more and more. And in the storyline of Mark here, we're just one year away from the crucifixion. And the intensity of that resistance is growing and growing exponentially. So you know, here's Jesus, here's the Pharisees, we're going to have some fireworks. There's going to be a discussion going on now. And so there's the crowd. The Pharisees are saying, you don't know what you're doing. Your disciples are not following the tradition of the elders. You are not right. And Jesus says, oh, you are the ones that aren't right. You lay aside the commandment of God holding the traditions of men. That's a pretty powerful statement, isn't it? He exposes them for what they really are, hypocrites. The word appears there, doesn't it, in verse 6. Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites. Now, if, if I was going to say 
that there was a prophecy about me in the Old Testament, I would not want it to be this one. <laughs> I mean, I can think of some, some that would be really good, but it, it certainly wouldn't be this one. But that's what they were. And a hypocrite is someone who tries to appear to be what they are not. Now, let's make this practical, okay? Just pretend there's nobody else in the room. Have you or I ever pretended to be something we're not spiritually? Have we ever tried to look more spiritual and more righteous and more holy than what we really are? Because if that's true, if we have experienced that, Jesus is talking to us. It's hard not to be a hypocrite, isn't it? It's hard to always, 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 at every time and in every moment of life, be consistent in our faith. It's, it's hard to stand up for the truth when everybody else is screaming a lie. It's hard to admit that we are believers in Jesus Christ when everybody else is saying that only weak-minded fools believe in God. It's hard to do what's right. But beloved, that's what we're called to. Now, I am very, very thankful for God's mercy and grace and patience because he knows that I stumble. He knows that you stumble. We're not always right. People have said to me many times, you know, the church is just all full of hypocrites. Well, you're right. You're right. But hopefully, hopefully, we are becoming, as we walk with the Lord, far less hypocritical in our behavior than we were before. We call that spiritual growth. We call that maturing in Christ. When I come to Christ as my Savior, maybe the only thing I know is that Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Maybe that's where it starts. But that's not where it ends. I begin to learn that, hey, as a, as a member of God's family, I've got some family responsibilities. I'm supposed to look after my brother and sister in Christ. I'm supposed to treat them with kindness. I've got some family responsibilities. I'm supposed to become a reflection of Jesus. And when I'm screaming at the guy in the car beside me because of what he's done, I'm not looking very much like Jesus. And, and when we get ourselves at that moment and we say, Lord, man, I let my pride, I let my self-centeredness take control. And I failed. I failed to let your Holy Spirit take control. Yeah, we were hypocritical in that moment, but then we were contrite and repentant, and hopefully we will grow, and the next time we will find that we are not 
being hypocritical. We're not claiming something that's not becoming an active part of our lives. In a sense, beloved, we all struggle with hypocrisy, all of us. But we can't stop there. We have to bring that moment of failure to the Lord and say, God, have mercy on me. Help me to grow. Help me to be more yielded to the control of your Holy Spirit. And, and God will do that portion. And, and then we, next time we find ourselves in that similar situation, we are the ones who have to be alert and say, God, in the moment here, I need your help because my, my old self wants to react. We have a responsibility as well. The Pharisees were the ones who never even considered that possibility that they needed to grow in their own spirit, that they needed to be transformed in their own hearts and minds. They were looking at everything external so that they could check off the box. I did it, I did it, I did it, I did it, I did it. I got 100% on my test. Where's my reward of eternal life? That's not how God operates. You don't get into heaven based on your good works. And by the way, you and I can't do anything good enough to please God, to get into heaven. We get into heaven through faith in Jesus Christ, through humility, coming to God and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We please our Heavenly Father when His Spirit brings conviction in our hearts of a moment of of hypocrisy in our lives and we say God I blew it right there forgive me I'm not living up to the position that I have in Jesus Christ forgive me for that and strengthen me and then as we we maybe we need to change a habit maybe we need to change something in our lives so that we're not putting ourselves in that place anymore you know there, there is that principle of not giving place to the devil, not, not giving an open door to temptation. You know, resist Satan, he'll flee from you. Yield not to temptation. We, we know that little song, don't we? There is our responsibility, but there is underneath of that God's divine enablement. And unless we cry out to him, we're never going to be able to fight the battle on our own and win it. But with God, all things are possible, right? The biggest battle that you and I will face, the biggest transformation that needs to happen is down deep in our own souls. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. He says, listen, you, you guys, you reject the commandment of God. Moses, this is just an example that he gives. It's one probably among many. Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And every single Pharisee would have said, yes, that is the command of God. And then they would have said, but if what we would normally use to help our parents is given to God as a gift, then that's a greater good. That's more important than honoring our parents. And so we're off the hook. 
And then their devious little minds kicked in and said, we'll give it to God like, okay, you can have it after I'm dead and gone. I'll write you into my will, God. But in the meantime, I'm going to use those things for me, but you get them when I'm gone. When I don't need them anymore, God, you, you get them then. You see how devious the human mind can be? To set aside the commandment of God and under the guise of religion, twist it and distort it and pervert it so that by the time it comes out over here, it's completely unrecognizable. It's a false religious system. Verse 11, or excuse me, verse 13. He says that you make the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down. Now, there are some traditions that are very good, you know, excellent traditions. Like the tradition that my parents had of getting me up and getting them up on a Sunday morning and going to church. It's a great tradition. And it was because mom and dad were consistent in that every Sunday, even when I had that dreaded disease, Sundayitis. You know what that is, don't you? Yeah, you get up and the kid gets up and well, I don't feel good. I'm tired. I, I want to stay home. Mom and Dad were skilled at seeing that, and they brought me anyway, sometimes protesting loudly. But that was a good tradition. Because over time, and through the influence of God's Word and the influence of Sunday school teachers that were there Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and taught the Word of God, I finally came to know Christ as my Savior. Some traditions are excellent if you know why you're doing them. But other things probably aren't so much so. How do you know the difference? How can you tell? Well, is it a tradition that makes an excuse for why you don't have to do what God's Word tells you to do? If it's that kind of a tradition, throw it out. It, it, it's, not, it's not from the Lord. Is it the kind of tradition that allows you to make excuses for not doing what you know the Lord wants you to do? If it's that kind of a tradition, throw it out because it's not a good one. Is it a substitute that externalizes your faith and puts it in the stuff that you do rather than in what Jesus Christ has done for you, if it's that kind of a tradition, throw it out because it's worthless. Is it the kind of tradition that builds up pride within you and makes you think that you're greater and better than anybody else around you? If it's that kind of a tradition, throw it out because it's of no value. Satan is pretty smart. And he knows what kind of traps to put in front of us. And, and we're pretty devious because we know how to work ourselves around the truth and to make ourselves feel like we're doing the truth at the same time we're working around it. So I can't give you a grocery list 
of what traditions are good and what traditions aren't good. I have to encourage you to look at the product. Look at the product of the tradition. What does it produce in our lives? If it produces godliness, then it may have value. If it produces ungodliness within us, then it's one of these that Jesus was talking about to the Pharisees that we need to get rid of because it is substituting the false teaching of men for the teaching and the purposes of Almighty God. It's a battle that we have to face a lot, continually. It's a battle that we're probably not ever going to be fully victorious over. We're probably always going to have something in our life where we can cheat on God. But if we're walking close to the Lord, if we're seeking His wisdom, if we're spending time in His Word, if we're asking like King David in Psalm 139, that God would search our hearts and know our thoughts and try us, test us, and see if there's any wicked way in us. If that's how we're coming before the Lord, guess what, beloved? I can tell you, based on the authority of God's Word, that those moments of hypocrisy in our lives are going to become fewer and fewer and fewer. And we will be more and more like Jesus Christ. We will reflect his glory at a greater and greater level as we walk with the Lord. So beloved, the question I guess today is this. Is my faith, is my religion, my belief system, is it real or is it fake? If it's fake, beloved, throw it out. Throw it out and come to Jesus Christ. And let that relationship change your life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's so easy for us to externalize things that can't possibly be externalized. When our hearts are changed, when our minds are our lives are changed, then, Father, our behavior changes, our attitude changes. But it all starts from inside. So, Lord, I pray that you would search my heart, know my thoughts, that you would try me and point out to me those things where I need to grow, where I'm not being consistent in living up to the position that you've given me in Jesus Christ as a forgiven child of God. Father, I pray that for my brothers and sisters as well, that, that Lord, all of us would learn how to live up to that place, that position that you've called us to, that as we bear the name of Christian, we wouldn't do it in a, a blatantly hypocritical fashion, but we would do it by living a life that's consistent increasingly consistent with your word, growing each and every day more like our Savior. Father, we ask this for your glory, for your blessing, so that when people look at us, they don't shake their heads and say, boy, I want nothing of that. But rather, they look at us and they see God at work in us and they see the power of your Spirit 
to change a life and they cry out and say, God, I want what they've got. I want Jesus. Father, may these things be true in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Amen.